Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest edition of our premium wine club. My name is Eric Mercier. I am co-owner of Juice Imports, and today I'm going to walk you through a pretty incredible little lineup of wines. In keeping with our theme this year of doing as many side-by-side comparisons as possible, uh, we've got two different Pinot Gris from our friends Ross and B. Maloof, uh, who are down in Oregon. Uh, Oregon is a place that I'm particularly familiar with from a wine perspective. I was fortunate enough to do four different vintages working at Walter Scott Winery, which is in the Eola Amity Hills, uh, so a short drive south of Portland in the Willamette Valley, and uh, convenient both these wines are uh, are also located within a short drive of uh, of Portland um, within that area. Um, if we look at Oregon, you know the Willamette Valley as a general statement. Essentially, it's a, a north south running valley. Um, it doesn't have you know super steep walls necess- necessarily, um, and it's quite you know, sort of like flat and elongated on the bottom. Um, but essentially it's, it's sort of trapped between, uh, two sort of small mountain ranges and the mountain range between, uh, the valley and the coast, uh, called the, the coastal range, um, essentially stops a lot of the cold air that comes off the ocean from getting into the valley. So during the day, um, this area really warms up. It gets nice and hot, uh, allows you to ripen grapes, even though they are quite far north compared to places like, you know, Central California, for instance, places like Napa, um, you know, we're quite a bit further north than that. Yet at the same time, you're able to get these, these, you know, temperatures that are quite warm, even though they're quite coastal. And then what happens uh, later in the day is that it actually gets so hot that uh, this lovely little spot called the Van Duzer Corridor, um, it's uh, it's essentially this gap in the in that coastal range, so that that you know, those small mountains dividing, uh, the valley from, from the ocean, there's like a little dip and the heat gets so hot in the valley that, uh, you basically have these two very different pressures, um, very low pressure from all the hot air in the valley and very, uh, high pressure from the cold air directly outside the valley because of the coast and all that cold air forces its way through, uh, that little corridor, um, you know, usually in the afternoon at some point, and all of a sudden you get this, you know, refreshing, cool breeze um, that is really sort of the trademark of the Willamette Valley. The closer you are to the Van Duzer Corridor, the more influence you're going to get from the ocean, um, that cooling effect. So if you look at, uh, you know, what we call a sub-AVA, so uh, an American viticultural area. Um, so the Willamette Valley is, is in AVAs, uh, and then a sub-AVA is sort of like a subdivided plot within that, essentially. And so if you look at places like the Eola Amity Hills that are facing directly towards the coast, um, directly across from the Van Duzer Corridor, uh, some of these vineyards are heavily influenced by those winds. Uh, you can see things like um, the grapes developing thicker skins than they normally would. Uh, and this is via the fact that uh, when when vines are pummeled with wind, uh, they create grapes with thicker skins to protect themselves, essentially. So um, the wind is influencing it that way. It, again, drops the temperature, which increases the acidity or at least 
helps the vines or helps the grapes themselves hang on to more acidity. Uh, and the first vineyard that we're going to talk about, uh, Johan Vineyard, is literally in the Van Duzer corridor. So it's getting as much influence from this as possible. And this has sort of allowed them to, to farm in a way that's different from most of the, the Willamette Valley. Although the Willamette Valley... Um, is quite progressive from an organics perspective. It's definitely still not the norm. Um, but in a place like the Van Duzer Corridor, where you're getting a lot of wind, a lot of drying effect from that wind, uh, these cooler temperatures, um, all these sort of things are, are influencing the fact that you see quite a few organic producers in this area. Um, but also Johan Vineyard, which is uh, biodynamic. They've been biodynamic for uh, over a decade now, and they're farming organic even before then. Um, the grape variety that we're talking about today is, uh, is Pinot Gris. Um, so maybe we'll give a little background on Pinot Gris before we jump into the other vineyard that we have. Um, Pinot Gris is uh, a color mutation of Pinot Noir. Uh, so Pinot Noir has existed for, you know, hundreds of years, maybe a thousand years. We're not entirely sure. It's kind of hard to, uh, to get, you know, proper evidence from back in the day. Its name has changed many times over. We didn't have genetic testing until quite recently, so people hundreds of years ago were very confused about what grape they had in the vineyard. Um, but Pinot Noir has uh, mutated many times over. So we have Pinot Blanc, which is uh, Pinot Noir but with white skins, and then Pinot Gris, uh, Pinot Gray. Um, so it's kind of halfway between Pinot Blanc and Pinot, uh, Pinot Noir um, from a color perspective. So Pinot Gris has very sort of pinky, salmon-y kind of skins. Um, it's often used to make white wine, uh, so you're, you're probably very familiar with Italian Pinot Grigio, for instance, or even Alsatian Pinot Gris, uh, which we'll definitely talk a lot about in our, in our pairings this month. Um, but, you know, at, at sort of the most commercial end of the spectrum, it's pretty flavorless. A lot of people, you know, definitely think that Pinot Gris and Pinot Grigio, uh, again, same grape variety, just uh, two different languages, Pinot Gris being French, Pinot Grigio being Italian for the exact same thing. Um, you know, these lighter, sort of more commercial styles are essentially flavorless. That's why it's one of the most popular wines. I think Santa Margarita might be the most popular white wine in Alberta. Uh, and the reason for that is because it doesn't really taste like anything. The way that they make these grapes taste like nothing is by uh, having an incredibly large crop on a small amount of land. So if you look at something like really premium Pinot Noir, you're usually farming somewhere between one and three tons per acre. Uh, so on an acre of land, uh, you know, you have enough nutrients in the soil, enough sunshine, uh, enough fertilizer, enough all these sort of things in order for you to properly ripen uh, really, you know, complex and intensely flavored grapes, uh, you know, with one to three tons per acre. Um, there's sort of like the old adage that uh, the lower your crop level, the more concentrated the fruit is. This works to a certain degree, um, but it's when you get into the really high numbers that things really change quite drastically. Uh, and that's what we have in the case of Pinot Grigio. In places like northern Italy, uh, some of these farmers are farming to you know, 10, 15, 20 tons per acre. Uh, so imagine essentially diluting really good quality Pinot Gris, but by like, you know, three quarters. So you're getting way less flavor, way less intensity, um, way less uniqueness. And so, you know, Pinot Gris sort of has a bad rap amongst 
people who work in the industry because most people who drink Pinot Grigio are drinking Pinot Grigio not because they like it, but because it's flavorless. Uh, it's something easy to drink. It's the same reason why people drink like vodka sodas. It's not because you're like, mm, I really like a vodka soda. Although I'm sure there are people out there that, that maybe do like vodka sodas. Um, but most people who are drinking it are just looking for something easy, thirst quenching, bright, fresh. And again, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Uh, it's just for the purposes that I think a lot of you are in the wine club, which is expression of place, uh, unique flavors, complexity, um, you know, sort of the haunting quality that certain wines can have that really draw you in the way that a good story does. Uh, you know, those Pinot Grigios and, and <laughs> vodka sodas are, are not really doing that versus if you crop way lower uh, and really pay attention to farming, you know, you end up with a lot higher quality and a lot more complexity. Um, Maloof, so Ross and B. Maloof, uh, they are obsessed with Pinot Gris. Uh, they make a bunch of different Pinot Gris in certain vintages, depending on what the what the weather is like and how their access to fruit is. They can make, you know, a half dozen different Pinot Gris, and some of their other wines will actually be blends, including Pinot Gris in them. Um, they wanted to prove that, you know, Pinot Gris being so closely related to Pinot Noir has just as much potential nobility. It's just that, you know, Pinot Noir, it's really hard to make a kind of cheap, gulpable wine from Pinot Noir. So people tend to farm it a lot better because they try and get a little bit more money out of it. Because again, cheap Pinot Noir is one of the most, ugh, goodness. I can't even think of a good cheap Pinot Noir in all honesty versus, you know, Pinot Grigio, you can farm the heck out of it and still gonna, again, it's flavorless, but it's not offensive versus bad Pinot Noir is downright offensive. So a lot of producers in Oregon and in the Willamette Valley in particular, um, Pinot Gris for them is like a little cash crop. Uh, they don't pay as much attention to it. So the farming is less expensive. They crop it really high. So they're probably getting somewhere between five and 10 tons an acre in, in certain cases, you know, maybe usually more in the middle of those two, but, but still. Um, so you're getting sort of flavorless grapes. Uh, you can release the wine really early because it doesn't need to age for very long. It doesn't need to develop a ton of complexity. Um, you know, you're not really, it's not going to go the long haul. So you're not, you're not worried about it aging or anything like that. So you usually release it in the spring um, and that gives you sort of your cash flow for the rest of the year versus the Maloofs, um, they want to do the opposite. They want to show, you know, the upper echelons of what Pinot Gris can possibly do. And again, we do have international examples of Pinot Gris making incredibly high quality wine. Um, you know, I think the first place we should think of when we think of Pinot Gris is definitely Alsace, so in northern France. In fact, this month for all of our wine pairings, uh, I've gone exclusively with Alsatian dishes, uh, you know, both to introduce you to a different food culture, but also maybe to represent, um, you know, the character that these wines tend to have. Um, I think these wines definitely have a lot more in common with uh, the Alsatian styles, uh, or even the styles that you see from Germany where, where Pinot Gris is often called Grauburgunder. Uh, so again, same sort of thing, gray grape from Burgundy. Uh, so Pinot Gris in this instance. Um, so it has a lot more common with those than it does with the, the Pinot Gris or Pinot Grigio that you would see in Northern Italy, or even the examples that you see being farmed in, uh, 
in like the Central Valley of California. You know, you think of like barefoot Pinot Grigio, where you know only seventy five percent of that wine is actually Pinot Grigio. The rest of it is is like Muscat and things like that to try and make it a little bit more flavorful. Um, but essentially, it's it's meant to be non complex drinkable wine versus these are very much uh, as complex as it gets. So again, the vineyard that I talked about first, Johan Vineyard, that's giving us uh, Rouge Degree. Um, so red made from gray, essentially. So this is an orange wine uh, made in the way that most of the orange wines that we work with uh, are um, with some level of skin contact. In this case, 70% of it was made essentially the same way that you would Pinot Noir. So de-stemmed, um, so no, uh, no stems involved. Um, fermenting on the skins for uh, just over two weeks with punch downs, meaning that uh, the cap of skins that forms on the top of a tank of wine, they punch that down uh, into the juice in order to extract more flavor, more color. Um, part of it was done carbonically, so the same way that you would treat Gamay Noir in, in places like Beaujolais, for instance. And then the rest of it was direct press, so the same way that you would make white wine. And so you're getting this blend of different fermentation techniques, different amounts of skin contact in order to yield something that, for me, is very much like a red wine made from, uh, well, in this case, pink grapes or white grapes, as we'd probably call them more often, even though they very much do not look uh, look white. Um, for me, this is just a, a surreal wine. It's one of my favorite wines that we've, we've brought in from Maloof, which I am admittedly a huge fan of. Uh, it's got this really incredible spice quality to it. I don't think I've ever experienced Pinot Gris with this sort of development of um, sweet spices like cinnamon and clove and allspice and, uh, you know, things on that sort of end of the spectrum. And that's mostly coming from that skin fermentation. Uh, this was all aged in neutral barrels, so you're not getting any sort of oaky characteristics. Um, all that flavor, all that sort of woodsy spice is all coming from the grapes themselves. Um, Again, this coming from Johan Vineyard, uh, biodynamically certified. It's really rare to get uh, biodynamic wines in the New Worlds. They represent uh, an incredibly small uh, amount of the planting. So it's, it's a real treat to get to do this. Um, versus the other vineyard that we're going to talk about. So the second wine from Maloof that we have, also 100% Pinot Gris, is from No Clo Radio. Uh, this is uh, the Maloof's actual vineyard. Um, they purchased this vineyard, uh, I just, well, essentially just a couple years ago with some of their friends. Um, they basically sort of weren't able to afford it on their own. So with the help of their, uh, you know, their amazing neighbors and best buds, they were able to actually purchase this vineyard and start working it themselves as of uh, earlier this year, which is incredible. Um, so they're in uh, a new AVA, uh, so in, an, in a new American viticultural area, um, the Tualatin Hills, uh, which is west of Portland. So unlike the Van Duzer Corridor and the rest of the Willamette Valley, which is mostly south of Portland, uh, this is actually straight west. Uh, it's actually up in that coastal range that I was talking about, so that, that small mountain range that's between the ocean um, and the valley. 
And because of this, they're at A, higher elevations, B, almost entirely isolated, and C, entirely surrounded by forest. Um, you know, if any of you have ever been to the forest, you'll notice that the forest is a great trap of heat. So it's quite cool up here. Uh, not only that, but I believe they're actually facing uh, a little bit north. Um, so unlike most of the vineyards that you see in the valley that are planted south to sort of take advantage of as much sunshine as possible, um, this was planted uh, in sort of a more north orientation, which help, helps preserve freshness, um, you know, allows them to harvest a little bit later, uh, you know, really, really spectacular place to be growing grapes. Um, here we kind of have like the classic soil types of, of the valley. Um, we have jory soils and, and loess, so loess being windblown soils. Um, this is sort of what we see most often. Uh, and then there's also this really interesting um, uh, iron and manganese uh, that's ended up in the soil. Uh, if you want to geek out about it, definitely, uh, d definitely Google um, uh, I think it's called uh, pisolytic uh, iron and manganese. Anyways, if, if you're a soil geek, it's definitely worth looking up because it's, uh, you know, it's definitely something that you don't see that often in vineyards in general, but in, in particular in Oregon. So uh, it's the first time that I've ever heard of it. Um, one of the things that makes this site really interesting as well is that it is a own rooted, uh, meaning that the roots are actually from the Pinot Gris, uh, as we've talked about on previous episodes, most vines in the world are grafted onto rootstocks that are not from the same species. Uh, these rootstocks can be bred for a handful of reasons. One is disease resistance, um, or it could be, uh, you know, like nutrient availability. It could be to, uh, push back bud burst, it can be pushed, uh, you can push back harvest times by using certain rootstocks um, for more saline soils or for um, iron-rich soils or for really basic soils. You know, there's, there's different roots for basically anything. Uh, most vines in the world, you know, probably 99.9% .9 of vines in the world are planted on grafted rootstocks versus this is actually own rooted. So the entire plant is Pinot Gris, which for the purists out there, um, this is going to be the most honest expression of terroir, the most honest expression of place, um, because you have a single plant, uh, you have a, a single, you know, the, the rootstocks have a lot to do with, uh, you know, sending hormones to the plant, uh, to the plant above ground in order to create certain flavor molecules. And so, you know, those rootstocks are going to have a pretty large influence on what the, the flavor of the finished wine is going to be. I think a lot of us like to think that it's pretty neutral, but it's, it's probably not. And so the fact that these are own rooted vines is just like, it's such a rarity. Uh, and then B, the other thing that's really exciting is that these are dry farmed, uh, meaning that there's no irrigation here. This is just, you know, vines living on their own uh, in the woods the way that, you know, nature intended in theory. Um, so this is as old school as it gets. Uh, this wine is made about as different as you can from, uh, from the Rouge degree. Um, this is direct pressed. So they take uh, whole clusters of, of grapes, they put it into their press, uh, and then they press it, um, you know, directly into barrel. Uh, for fermentation. Again, we're talking neutral barrels, so don't expect to find any oakiness here. Uh, there won't be any oakiness. Um, just going to be, you know, the flavors of the actual grapes and, and the fermentation process itself. 
Uh, this is an incredibly small production, 69 cases. Uh, it's not like the Rouge degree is massive production. It's only 299 cases. We only received like 120 bottles of it. Um, but this one, we got even half of that. So it's, uh, it's a nice treat for us to get to include it in the, in the club. We used our final three cases for the club. So, um, you know, if you really like this, there will be an opportunity to buy like maybe a bottle or two, but after that, it's going to be gone until uh, until the next vintage comes out, which should be in the fall if everything goes right. Um, but yeah, I, I think that these two are really fun to get to taste side by side. Uh, again, you really get to experience the flavors that are coming from the skins in, in the Rouge degree, understanding that spice quality, um, you know, 60% of the flavor of a grape. Uh, at least from a diversity perspective, comes from the skins. And so, you know, you're really getting that, uh, you know, understanding that uh, Pinot Gris really is somewhere between a red and a white grape. And, uh, and then No Clo Radio definitely giving you more of that sort of ethereal style. Um, again, flavor profiles on the, on the No Clo Radio for me, definitely more sort of like yellow fruit, um, more sort of like pithy. Uh, it's really got this sort of weightlessness to it. Uh, really elegant, very, very pretty, pretty wine. Um, wine that I get super excited about because of its, you know, sort of lack of flamboyance. I, I think that it's really easy to fall in love with wines that are, you know, sort of ostentatious and over the top, but it's, it's exciting for me to see wines like this that are just so reserved and poised and and just absolutely perfect so uh it's really cool that we got to include this in the club um again you can read through uh through our newsletter for for wine pairings i've gone full alsatian as i mentioned uh the last wine that we have in this club um again every month we try and alternate between um two whites or, or two oranges or a white and an orange or you know something that's not red essentially so two two that are that are not red uh and then usually uh you know one that is red and then the following month we'll do two reds so next month we got two reds in the wine club uh and one uh either white orange or rosé i've already forgotten what i'm using in next month but i'm sure it'll come to me at any moment now uh but our last wine rigor and whimsies uh into the darkest wood uh, this is such a treat to include in the club. We only got three cases for all of Alberta and all of them are going to the wine club. Again, there's maybe like a handful of bottles left. So if you fall in love with this, definitely snatch it up. Um, but yeah, only 36 bottles in Alberta. Um, which reminds me, I guess if you have any friends that want to join the club, we have a little bit of extra space. We, again, we agreed that we would cap it at 36 members ever. Uh, so that means, uh, 12 up in Edmonton and 24 down in Calgary, or I guess 23. Cause I'm also part of the wine club cause it gives me an opportunity to drink wines that I can't get my hands on, frankly. Uh, and so, yeah, if you have any friends that want to sign up, absolutely send them the link. We would love to have them on board. And honestly, it makes our life a lot easier because recording a full podcast and, and, uh, you know, writing all these things just for, uh, you know, for a dozen or so people, uh, you know, we like to stretch it out, spread it around a little bit. It makes it a little more economically viable for us. So, um, you know, feel free to pass on that information. So this wine is coming from our good friends, Costa and Jody at Rigor and Whimsy. Um, they've had a, uh, you know, tumultuous couple of years. Uh, you know, every single time they get access to a really cool vineyard, it seems like that, that, uh, you know, the vineyard ends up selling or 
uh, you know, they want to go a different direction or they're like, yeah, absolutely. We'd love to farm organically. And then they end up changing their mind and being like, ah, actually like Jackson Triggs is willing to pay us, you know, a good amount of money and we don't have to convert to organic and they lose that contract. So I feel like every year it's like a whole new roster of lines, which is, or of wine, sorry, uh, which is exciting, but at the same time can, uh, you know, I'm sure it's infuriating for them not to be able to work with the same sites every single year. Um, this is their latest uh, rendition of Syrah. Uh, Syrah, one of my favorite grape varieties, or, you know, I might as well just out and say it, my favorite grape variety, my favorite red grape variety, I suppose. Uh, I just think it can be so diverse and it's just so compelling and has this sort of like animal quality to it, this this spice component. Um, honestly, it tastes unlike anything else in the world. And so I always get really excited about drinking Syrah. Um, this is, uh, for those of you who don't know Rigor and Whimsy, they're in the Okanagan. Uh, their actual winery itself is in Okanagan Falls, uh, so just south of Penticton. But the actual uh, vineyard that they're getting this fruit from um, is all the way down in a Soyuz, so essentially um, on the border of the U.S., a uh, lot hotter down here. Um, this is the northern tip of the desert that happens to roll up through Washington. And so it's very dry here. It gets quite hot during the summer. You know, we're talking 40 degree days. Uh, so it ends up being the perfect climate for growing things like Syrah, which is, you know, a modest climate grape. It's uh, It can do well in, in cool, you know, maybe not cool climates. That's That's you know, it's not doing super well up near Kelowna, for instance, but it can do quite well in places like the Northern Rhone, which is not super warm. Um, but, uh, yeah, it definitely likes some heat as well, too. You can often see it grown in the Mediterranean, uh, you know, whether that be in Greece, whether that be in Italy, whether that be in, uh, you know, southern parts of France. And so it's a great variety that can definitely withstand the heat a little bit better than others can. Um, winemaking here is pretty classic. Um, they're doing uh, sort of like a whole cluster um, cold maceration, I think we can call it. I don't know. I don't know entirely what to call it. Essentially, what they do is they get whole clusters of grapes in, um, put them into a tank. Uh, because it was so cold when they harvested this at the end of October, um, fermentation didn't get started off for essentially a week. So the, the grapes kind of just sat there and did their own thing. As the grapes... Uh, slowly deteriorate just by sitting there. A lot of the flavor leaches from the skins into the juice. And so you end up with more intensity of flavor um, and a softening of acidity as well too, usually from this. Uh, you know, after that week, once fermentation got kicked off, you know, we they did foot crushing of the grapes. Again, it may sound crazy on paper, but honestly, most of our winemakers uh, crush their grapes by foot. Uh, it's just such a gentle way of doing it and you also really understand the fermentation if one side of the fermentation feels cold on your feet versus the other one's hot you know to mix up the fermentation a little bit because it's fermenting on one side but not on the other side so it's a it's a really easy way of uh, homogenizing the uh, actual fermentation vessel at the same time um after it's done fermentation, uh, it does 16-month elevage uh, in barrel before being racked and bottled. Um, this elevage time really helps the stability of the wine. Uh, essentially, as wines get exposed to tiny amounts of oxygen through the outside of the barrel, um, it helps uh, you know, polymerize chains of tannins, for instance, in color, um, and just basically makes that wine sort of ready to go out into the world. So, uh, you know, doing 
what we call like overwintering or over over vintage, um, which is when you make a wine and then you don't bottle it until you've already started making the following year's wine. Um, so usually being bottled either in the spring, uh, you know, following or in, you know, sometimes in the winter after you're done harvest. Um, I really do think this is the ideal situation and provided you have the economic stability to do it, I think most wines would benefit from this sort of like long, gentle elevage. So we're really lucky that, uh, that, you know, Costa and Jody had the foresight to, you know, sit on this wine for an additional period of time. Uh, from a flavor perspective here, this is pretty classic Syrah, although it is on the lighter side. You know, we're talking 12.5% alcohol. Uh, if you're familiar with Australian Shiraz, for instance, you'll maybe be more familiar with Syrah creeping up into the, you know, 14 to 15% range. But 125 is actually quite traditional, even for regions like Hermitage and Cote Roti, very famous uh, Syrah regions in France. So it's definitely on the on the brighter and fresher side of things, but not lacking in intensity. Lots of dark fruit characteristics here, but also a lot of red fruit. Syrah, for me, tends to, to border on the black fruit, but uh, for some reason, the, the you know, I'm noticing a lot of things like raspberry and strawberry here. Um, you know, maybe not like fresh raspberry and fresh strawberry, more sort of like macerated versions of those fruits. Um, but at the same time, it's just absolutely delicious. Uh, and then again, it has all those savory components that I was talking about that I really like in Syrah. Uh, things like black pepper, things like cured meats, uh, things like iron. You know, you're getting little hints of those. Uh, also, this wine is in theory actually over the legal limits for uh, volatile acidity in Alberta. Um, but you know, where it still tastes delicious. So volatile acidity is essentially when uh, Acetobacter starts consuming uh, some of the the alcohol in the wine um, and creating vinegar. Um, but we're talking about like 1.56 grams of, uh, of volatile acidity uh, per liter in this wine. So, you know, it's not crazy. Uh, I think the limit in Alberta is like uh, one gram per liter. So, you know, it's, it's over that for sure, but things like Radicon have, you know, over two grams per liter. So, you know, it's not crazy, especially on red wines, you know, VA can be hidden by the intensity of fruit. So if you look at things like a lot of Italian wines, classic Italian wines, they'll often have super elevated levels of, of VA and they, they integrate, they don't feel weird. Um, you know, I think that in the right amounts, it can add this really charming sort of uplifting quality. Uh, it really brings this sort of bright cherry note to it, uh, almost like a candied fruit characteristic, depending on where it is. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, it adds this really sort of fun element. Uh, you know, it's kind of the nature of the beast with fermentation. You're always going to get some, uh, some interesting characters like that. Um, yeah, I feel like that's pretty much everything I have to say today. Again, I'll let you refer back to the newsletter for actual wine pairings. Uh, I feel like my write-ups this month are quite good. I hope some of you actually make the things that I'm saying. I would absolutely love to see photos of anything that you uh, happen to be eating with this. Uh, you know, this wine club is about making friends with people who like drinking good wine. So if you happen to be out there and, and you're listening and you're like, hey, I absolutely want to hang out. Uh, you know, if you want to make me one of those Alsatian stews, I would absolutely reciprocate with a, with a bottle of wine for sure. Uh, anyways, if anybody has any additional questions or has suggestions on, on things they would like to learn more about in upcoming episodes of the podcast, feel free to send me an email. My email address is eric, E-R-I-K, 
at juiceimports.com. Uh, you can also send us a message on Instagram, where it's at juiceimports. Um, you know, we love hearing from you. We love any sort of feedback. Uh, so, you know, looking forward to chatting with you very soon. Thanks so much for tasting this month. We'll chat with you next month.